what we're looking for coming out of this COP is to highlight a handful of things that can define an action agenda for 2024 and then can inform what countries do when they set those more ambitious targets in 2025. Welcome to Environmental Insights, a podcast from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens, a professor here at the Harvard Kennedy School and director of the program. On Thursday, November 30th, the 28th Conference of the Parties, otherwise known as COP28, of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, abbreviated as the UNFCCC, will commence in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, the UAE. What can be expected to happen at COP28? Well, my guest today is exceptionally well positioned to offer some meaningful intelligence and insight regarding this question, because today I'm talking with Dr. Nathaniel Cohane, an environmental economist who now serves as president of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, otherwise known as C2ES. Welcome, Nat, to Environmental Insights. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. So in a few minutes, as I suggested, I'm really eager to hear your forecast of COP28, as well as, for that matter, your reflections and assessment on the current state of climate change policy. But something that we always do, which our listeners seem to find very interesting, is to go back a bit to find out how you came to be where you are. So let's start with where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up out in Stanford, California. And then when I was in elementary school, we moved to Wellesley, Massachusetts. That sounds like that's associated with parents who might be academics. That's exactly right. I was a academic brat. An academic brat. (laughs) Uh, So you do primary school or at least high school in Wellesley. Is that right? That's right. And then you went on to college, to Yale, where you studied, is it both history and studies in the environment? That's right. Exactly. So does that mean that uh, this is like uh, two different majors? Did you write a senior thesis? If so, was it a bit of both? How does that work? Yeah. So at the time, this was actually before Yale and other universities introduced studies of environment or environmental studies as its own major Mm -hmm. or concentration. So it was only available as a kind of second major. So I was primarily a history major, but I got a um, I was able to, to assemble a number of courses in the studies and environment, which is which is what I thought I might want to do someday. So the, the degree is history and studies and environment, and uh, but we didn't have a separate major for the latter. And apparently, you were thinking very much of environment because you you graduated 1993, and you went, I believe, directly to the Environmental Defense Fund. Is that right? Yes, I thought I might want to be a historian, a professional historian, mm-hmm. but I decided before embarking on that, I would give the environmental community a try. And so I handed out my paper resume that, that in the day and up to every, I papered all of Washington, D.C. with my resume and I landed at Environmental Defense Fund um, in Washington, which was a happy place for me to land because that's where I got really caught up with the idea that 
economic thinking could improve environmental outcomes because that was very much in the air in the mid-1990s and Environmental Defense Fund, as you know, Rob, was at the center of that. Yeah, well, that's great to hear. We've had a number of guests from EDF in this podcast, partly because of the fact that I myself was a full-time EDF staffer before I came east to graduate school. So I applaud that for sure. So you were in Washington with EDF for couple of years? That's right, a year and a half. What'd you work on there? So I worked on something called the Paper Task Force, which was the second effort that EDF ever had to work very closely with companies. The first one had been a very successful one-on-one effort with McDonald's that really reformed how McDonald's thought about its packaging. And so the second one was with a whole group of companies to try to reform the paper industry. And I was brought on as, a, of all things, a research associate on the forestry side, which is an area mm-hmm. that EDF didn't have as much native understanding of. The, the task force itself turned out, we I think EDF bit off a little bit more than it could chew. Uh, it was hard to get everybody to move at once in the paper industry mm-hmm. uh, relative to working with one company at a time. But as I said, that was the time when the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments that set up a cap and trade program for sulfur dioxide, they were just getting implemented. And so it wasn't so much the experience of being in the paper task force that I was doing day to day. It was more seeing some of my colleagues at EDF Hmm. working on this market-based program that I thought was so interesting that really inspired me about the potential for uh, economics and environmental policy. And indeed, you followed up with that because then you went on to graduate school. So tell us uh, where you went and something about your experience there. Well, as you know, Rob, I went up to Harvard. You helped convince me to to join the, uh, to go to the political economy and government program at, at Harvard, which is a joint program between the economics and political science departments and the Kennedy School. And I think what I really took away from that was affirming the, the thought that economics could improve the understanding and the design of environmental policy to, to get more ambitious outcomes uh, in a more efficient way. And, and I also had the overlay of, of political economy to, to be able to think uh, in a structured way about how politics works, how political institutions work, and how we can maybe be more effective at getting the policies in place that we, uh, that we aim for. Now, Marty Weitzman was on your three-person committee. Is that correct? That's right. And, yeah. and was Bill Hogan as well? Uh, no, it was uh, Marty and Chris Avery. Chris Avery. Uh, and, and you. Right. The, the reason I ask that is that uh, I remember your dissertation defense when at the end of the period of time in which we're, in theory, asking you challenging questions, you leave the room, we go into executive sessions so we can decide whether or not the individual student has passed the dissertation defense and it was either Chris or Marty who turned to me and said, so did we pass? <laughs> That's very, very kind. Well, you did very well, in other words. And you graduated in 01, and you immediately became, I think it was immediate, you became an assistant professor uh, at Yale. That's right. I went to the School of Management, to the economics group. And those I, I ended up spending six years there. We'll talk about the next transition. But I found... And I continue to say this to young people who ask about their careers and so on. I thought the time I spent teaching economics mm-hmm. and being part of an economics group, a kind of applied econ group at a, at a business school was really useful in just cementing my knowledge of economics and economic theory. There's nothing like teaching a subject 
to make sure you really understand. I, I completely agree with that. And also one can learn from students, as I certainly do on a regular basis, including from you. So um, you stayed there for six years. And then I wouldn't say you went back, but you went to the Environmental Defense Fund. Yeah. So, you know, I enjoyed time in academia, um, but I found, and I think it's changed since then. And and Rob, people like you have had a lot to do with that and other members of, of, well, members of my kind of cohort. But at the time, the response when I was up for promotion, I did, I got promoted to associate professor Mm -hmm. in 2007. And the message I got was, why are you working so much on environmental policy? Don't you want to work on more general interest things? And I said to myself, well, the whole reason I got into this was to do environmental policy. Mm -hmm. So Maybe I ought to go somewhere where where I can focus on that. And I was impatient. Uh, I didn't want to wait around and and spend a lot of time just spending getting tenure before I could get into the policy world itself. So I joined environmental rejoined Environmental Defense Fund this time in New York and got right into the thick of the negotiations in Congress and the design mm-hmm. around what became the Waxman Markey cap and trade. Well, it's actually the Waxman Markey climate bill, much bigger than cap and trade, but I was very, very, very involved in the design of that emissions trading program that was the heart of Waxman Markey. And so I got to see really firsthand what it looks like to try to design congressional legislation, get it passed in one one part of Congress. But of course, we ultimately failed to get it passed in the Senate. But that gave me an up close and personal look at the development of policy in Washington. You know, I'll mention that... uh you indicated, and I think you're absolutely correct, that back then there was not very much interest in academia within certainly business schools. Michael Toffel, whom I'm sure you know, who's from Harvard Business School, was recently on this podcast, and he described over a substantial period of time, decades, the way in which that has changed from something that might be tolerated to an area where for instance, HBS has, I think it's maybe four or five faculty members uh, focused exclusively or mainly on the environment. That's right. I think that's right. And that's a testament not only to the urgency of climate change in particular, that I think is impossible to ignore, but also the really good work of people who stuck around in academia and uh, and pushed the envelope of what, what, we, what could be done and really made environmental economics, climate economics a top tier issue. So you said that one of the reasons you enjoyed being back at EDF, where I think you were serving as chief economist, was that you were getting to work on some real government policy, or at least in that case, proposed government policies. But then you went into it with both feet. You uh, joined the administration, the Obama administration, I think in uh, something like 2010, 2011? That's right. I started right at the beginning of 2011. Uh, so I joined as a special assistant to the president for energy and environment in the National Economic Council. <laughs> the fun thing about being in the administration at that time um, on climate, this was the first term. And so it was before mm-hmm. the Obama administration really expanded the set of people working on climate. And so there were just a handful of us. So I actually was triple-hatted. I was uh, I was the person in National Economic Council working on energy and environment for Gene Sperling. I was also the person, the kind of policy person in the Domestic Policy Council working with Heather Zeichel, mm-hmm. who essentially took over for Carol Browner when Carol left. And then I was sort of triple-hatted with Mike Froman, who was the uh, assistant to president for international economic policy. And I, I worked on the international side as sort of the lead White House person 
on the international negotiation. So it was three hats, which made for a lot of really interesting, uh, get, getting involved in a lot of interesting things, um, even though it was a, a relatively brief time because I was there for about 19 months mm-hmm. up until the, the mid, the, the 20, uh, 26, uh, 2012 rather election. Now, is it right that with at least one of those hats, you succeeded Joe Aldi and came before uh, Jason Bordoff? So yes, on the first and no on the second. So, so Joe, uh, Joe and I had the same triple headed role. Mm-hmm. So I succeeded okay. Joe and came right into his role. Jason and I were there at the same time. So he, he was at CEQ and then uh, actually after I left, he, he also moved over a little bit more into NEC, but with a, with more of that international, uh, actually oil markets role really mm-hmm. is what is what mm-hmm. So he was part of that broader uh, expansion of the team that happened after I left. So you were with the administration for close to two years. Then you returned to EDF to become senior vice president for climate. And this time you stayed for quite a while. So tell us about those years at EDF, 2012 to something like 2021. Yeah, that's right. So I came back after, as you mentioned, I had been chief economist at EDF beforehand. And of mm-hmm. course I come out of academia. And so I'd always been in sort of an expert role. Mm-hmm. And when I came back to EDF from uh, the White House, which by the way, wasn't preordained. I had actually deliberately cut off, um, I had cut off ties with EDF because I thought it was really important to be independent when I was in the White House. So it sort of started all over again when I left the White House and yet I still landed at EDF because I, I thought very highly of the organization. Mm-hmm. But I went back in a different kind of role rather than being chief economist. I, I wanted to see what it would be like to run a program. So I came on, I started off running the international climate program when I joined uh, back in 2020, 2012. Mm-hmm. And then over time, uh, built, you know, expanded that into running all of EDF's climate work. And I really liked that aspect of running a program, thinking about the overall strategy, being responsible in part for raising money for the program, being part of the EDF executive team and so on. It was a different set of uh, skills and, and muscles, but it was one that I, I really thought it was, it, it, it was something I had wanted to try out and I really enjoyed it when I switched from that sort of expert role to the mm-hmm. more of a manager role, obviously still getting involved in the substance, but also with a little bit of more of an overview of running a program. Now, the fact that you liked it and did well at it in terms of taking on that management responsibility clearly validates and explains your next step when you accepted the role of being president of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions, C2ES. Now, both institutions are well known, probably to our listeners, EDF and C2ES, but most have not, probably none of our listeners, and certainly not myself, have been in a position to be able to compare the two. So can you say something about that, having been at EDF, now having been for several years at C2ES, how do you compare these two institutions? Sure. So uh, just a bit about C2ES, we were founded as the Pew Center right. on Climate Change in, 20, in, in 1998. So we're 25 years old this year. And then when the Pew Charitable Trust shifted its strategy, it spun off C2ES about nine years ago into an independent organization. But C2ES and and early before that, Pew was founded to essentially create the business and analytical case for market-based climate policy. It was, I think, the first organization solely focused on climate. But that market and business um, focus is quite 
consistent with uh, what EDF has always stood for, which is uh, bringing economics. Uh, I mean, EDF is a much bigger organization, stands for many things. But one of the distinctive things about EDF, especially from about the, the, the late 70s on, was bringing economics into uh, the design of, of environmental policy. I think EDF was the first environmental NGO to hire an uh, in economics PhD. And, and that mm-hmm. economics and working with, it was also one of the first to work with business. I mentioned McDonald's in the 90s. So both organizations have economics and working with business as a central part of their DNA. I think they both share a view um, that well-designed uh, climate policy can lead to thriving and prosperous economies. So a view of prosperity and thriving economies as being consistent with good climate policy uh, and and going hand in hand. And both, I think, occupy, you know, EDF now, I think, has gone maybe a little bit, uh, moved a little bit to the left, but both are pretty centrist Mm -hmm. in in their views of looking to work with a a broad array of stakeholders uh, and and in Washington, uh, trying to work with folks on both sides of the aisle, which can be is a little bit harder than it used to be, but but trying to work with folks on both sides of the aisle uh, in order to find broad consensus for solutions, and so that they they do share mm-hmm. a fair amount of that DNA. Now, of course, EDF is a lot larger uh, than C2ES, and that means a couple things. You know, it, it means from the point of view of running C2ES, it's it's fun because we're small and nimble, and we can be mm-hmm. opportunistic and responsive. But of course, EDF has the ability uh, and the sort of globe spanning presence um, that that also allows it to do some really important things. Now, EDF, and for that matter, the Natural Resources Defense Council. Council, in addition to advocacy work or lobbying, whatever it's one might call it, they're also engaged in litigation. They're filing lawsuits, I believe. Um, C2ES doesn't do that, or do you? No, we don't. That's right. So we don't have we we don't have any lawyers on staff, or at least people who are you know at, attorneys. Mm-hmm. Um, that's always been part of. EDF's history, and as you say, other groups like NRDC. Mm-hmm. Um, what makes C2S, I think, really distinctive, uh, certainly in the in the U.S. context, we have a business council of now 41, mostly Fortune 500 right. companies that we work very closely with, and we inform them about environmental, about climate policy and climate technologies. We mobilize them to advocate for strong and effective climate solutions. Uh, we're able to combine their voices as voices of business with our voice as the voice of a climate organization. And, and I think that's what our sort of distinctive value add in the in the domestic space is. We also, and I know we'll, we'll, we'll get to the international piece, but in the international context, we have been convening international negotiators uh, in, to the climate talks for, uh, for at least 15 years. And so I think C2S, by virtue of being small, by virtue of having a reputation as a really credible kind of straight shooting organization that looks for broad-based consensus around solutions and effective policy, we're able to bring folks together uh, and, and in particular, you know, convene negotiators in the international mm-hmm. context that I think contributes a lot to the progress and the talks over time. Well, speaking of convening in the international context, so let's turn to COP28. Um, before we burrow into some of the specific issues, I would just love to hear briefly, what are your major expectations um, for what's going to happen there, what's going to be accomplished there? Sure. So, you know, as always, there are a lot of um, specific issues that come up in the negotiations. We can talk about them. They're, they're important. Adaptation and loss and damage will be mm-hmm. will be top of the list this year. We can talk about those in a minute. 
But I think the big thing that distinguishes this COP, this conference of the parties from others, is that this is the first time we're seeing what the UN calls the global stock take. So to understand that just really quickly, the Paris Agreement is built upon a five-year cycle of ambition. Um, you were in Paris, Rob. Yep. We were there together yep. in December of 2015. I was there. Everybody came out of Paris saying, we know that, that the initial uh, pledges, the initial nationally determined uh, contributions that com- that countries set forward, their targets, in that case for 2020 or 2025, we, 2025 rather, we know those aren't going to be ambitious enough. We know we're going to start off and immediately need to get more ambition. So how do we design a an agreement that does that. And that's where this five-year cycle of ambition comes in. And the way it, it works is every five years, countries are required to come back and submit new and more ambitious targets for uh, for the next five-year period. So in 2015, countries were submitting uh, mostly targets for 2025. Then they came back because of COVID. It turned out they came back in 2021 with targets for 2030. And now in 2025, countries need to come back with more with new targets and uh, including for 2035. And then as part of that five years, a couple years in advance, so this year, 2023, in advance of those new targets being due, we have this a, a chance to take stock at a global level of the progress we're making or that we're not making. Where are we as a globe relative to the trajectory of emissions reductions we need to meet the Paris goal of keeping the rise in temperature well below two degrees and ideally 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. So that's the global stock take. And that's going to be the centerpiece of this COP. And Mm -hmm. what's particularly important from a policy point of view is that we don't just stop at saying, gee, we're way off track. We, We knew going in, we were going to be off track. We are not cutting emissions fast enough. So the real purpose of the global stock take needs to be what are a handful of things that countries can commit to do jointly that will help close the gap between where we are and where we need to be. And what we're looking for coming out of this COP is to highlight a handful of those high-level political signals coming out of this global stock take. Things like a commitment to triple renewable energy globally by 2030. Um, things like slashing methane emissions. You can imagine a handful of others on uh, land use and carbon sinks, on adaptation, on global finance. A handful of things that can define an action agenda for 2024 and then can inform what countries do when they set those more ambitious targets in 2025. So that's the real centerpiece of this COP. But as its name suggests, the global stock take is not an assessment of what individual countries are doing or not doing. It's exactly. a global assessment. It's the aggregate, right. right? Yeah, It's the aggregate. But the goal is to catalyze action and collaborative, cooperative action in mm-hmm. 2024, looking ahead to 2025, not just simply to say, well, gee, we're off track. That's too bad, right? We need right. to catalyze action going forward. So you mentioned the loss and damage, the mm-hmm. relatively recent loss and damage fund. Um, and if there's any area which might be quite controversial, which you might see some passionate debates at COP28, it could well be on the loss and damage fund. And here's what I'd like to ask you. On the one hand, uh, countries of the world, including you know major contributors to the stock, such as the United States, the European Union, China, have endorsed the existence of the fund. 
But China has made it clear that as a quote unquote developing country, it's not going to be contributing to the fund. The United States is essentially in a position of saying that, well, we've, we now endorse the fund. We've changed our mind last year. We're endorsing it. But given Republican control of the House of Representatives, we're not going to be able to contribute any new funds to it. So my question, therefore, given that, and given that the only pledges or statements about the funds are in the tens of millions of dollars, not the trillions, which is what the demand side will be probably eventually, um, is this, and the lack of China and the U.S. contributing, is, is this an empty shell, or or do you see the agreement on the loss and damage fund as possibly a first step towards what might some be, day be considered an equitable sharing of the burden of climate change? Well, I don't mean to be wishy-washy, but in a sense, it's both. Mm -hmm. And here's what I mean. Um, I certainly think it's a first step, but it's also a first step that I'm sure will leave many folks unsatisfied at the beginning, because it is true that it's um, that the U.S. is probably not in a position politically to put money into a loss and damage fund. And and it is, I think, when you think about the contribution that countries have made, certainly the uh, made to climate change, in other words, the, the emissions they've put into the atmosphere, China, while still behind the U.S. in terms of historical emissions, is catching up quickly because yes. China, by far the world's largest emitter, more than the U.S. and the EU combined. So uh, it's hard. I think it will be hard. On the one hand, it'll be hard for the U.S. to continue to say, well, gee, we, we just, you know, boy, we can't find the money. And I think it will be hard for China to continue to say, well, we're, we're just a developing country. We can't contribute. In the short term, uh, I think the advocates for loss and damage will be, will say, I'm sure many of them, oh, well, this is, you know, this is falling short. But I think it is an important first step. Mm -hmm. and, and part of the reason I say that is if you go back even 10 years uh, or 11 years when I was in the White House and, and attending the, uh, the, the, the 12 years ago in Durban, uh, South Africa, mm -hmm. at, at the COP then, you know, the idea of loss and damage was already, at that point, the U.S. Was, was, not, was sort of unwilling to even talk about it because it felt like some sort of liability regime or yeah. compensation. And so I think we've come a long way with the recognition that there are damages that the most vulnerable countries are going to suffer, are suffering already, that go beyond simply the investments in adaptation and climate resilience, and that there needs to be some way to address those. And I think we've made a fair amount of progress, even though it's not going to be satisfying to, to everybody right away. Um, so I think it's the first step towards uh, an institution over time that can grow and build and become something more important. Yeah, I wasn't trying to set you up. Actually, I agree that it is probably both. And, you know, where it evolves in the future, you know, we obviously don't know. It, it might well be that one of the reasons it was possible for the U.S. to change its position is that it has in the Paris Agreement or in Decision 52 that goes along with the Paris Agreement, the statement that the loss and damage should not be or is not associated with compensation or legal liability. Right. And that makes this country, China, and probably the EU um, relatively comfortable, I would think. And, and that's a good example of how I think the issue and the negotiations around it have evolved mm -hmm. um, over time. To, to where we where we find ourselves now uh, on the cusp of it looks like on the cusp of an agreement 
uh, around the creation of a loss and damage uh, and oper- sort of rather operationalizing the funding arrangements at, at COP28. So you mentioned about how the negotiations have evolved over time. And that's what I'd like to ask you about, is that the first COP I went to was in Bali about 16, 17 years ago. And my perception at the time was that, gee, most of the action is in the negotiations. And then those of us, so-called civil society, who are legitimized by the UNFCCC itself as participants in this, that those of us in civil society, private industry, academics, NGOs, that, you know, we were the minor part on the side. If I had to put numbers on it, I'd say it was like 80 to 90 percent the parties doing their work, and then we're like 20% on the side. But I have seen that, this is my perception now, I've seen that evolve over time. So that by the time of last year in Sharm el-Sheikh at COP27, I had the perception that, you know, 80% of the interesting action was the periphery. Uh, not the negotiations themselves. Now, that could temp- be temporary because, of course, now we have the Paris Agreement in place, so that's understandable, and we have the rule book. But still, I have the perception that the role played by the other participants, who are the lar- the majority in terms of numbers, and includes the press, of course, that they play an increasingly important role. Um I'm interested to know what you think about that. Well, I I agree completely. And and to give your listeners a sense, first first I'll say I was only a couple of years behind you. So my first cop was 2009. Mm-hmm. I think that was that was Copenhagen. Bali was 2007. Of course, as you know well, that we we both know many people who have been to every cop since right. 19. Oh yeah, started in 1995. So I I still feel like a newbie sometimes. But I will say I think you're absolutely right about the evolution of the COP and, and, and of the attendance of it. And to give your readers a sense, for those who haven't been at a COP, at this point, if you were to go to a COP, what you would mainly see is sort of a trade fair, massive expo. Actually, first of all, every, the, the whole city of Dubai is going to have massive number of side events, even right. before you get out to the site where the conference is being held. And then at the site where the conference is being held, there's a big site called the Green Zone Mm -hmm. where it's much easier to get in and there's lots of things going on, lots of student activists packed, people are roaming around, they're doing side events, there's booths everywhere you look. And then beyond the Green Zone, there's a more restricted Blue Zone where you have to have a pass to get into. Rob, you and I, of course, will both be there. But even when you get into the Blue Zone, it's still side events, panels, discussions. I'll be there for 10 days. My days are packed already. And all of that's going to be in these side events on the Blue Zone. If you penetrate all the way to the very back of the Blue Zone and you know where to look, you can find the negotiations themselves, which are held uh, in the very back, you have to have a special badge to get into the negotiations themselves, even beyond the blue zone. And that, I think, numbers, if I have my numbers correctly, it's something like eight or 10,000 people total that are involved in those negotiations. Mm-hmm. But we might see 40, 50, 60, 70,000 people mm-hmm. at the top overall. And that gives you a sense of that uh, of that pivot. So I agree. I, would, I wouldn't say one is more substantive than the other, in a sense. I think the the negotiations themselves can move very slowly. They can be very, very technical. But on the other hand, as you know, Rob, the existence of the Paris Agreement, even though it's 
even though it's far less quick than many of us would like, it still has provided the structure and the scaffolding for a lot of the progress we've seen since 2015. Um, and so the Paris Agreement plays a very important role. The negotiations are part of moving that forward. And now that we have this event every year, it really becomes a magnet, a draw for everybody working on climate. And the fact that the all those side events have become so big, I think, reflects the fact that climate is now central to the decisions that policymakers are making, not just in a climate ministry or an environment ministry, but in the treasury mm-hmm. and, uh, and in finance ministries and, and in energy ministries and so on. Uh, climate is central to what businesses are doing and how they're making plans. So a lot of the people in the blue zone will be businesses and, and folks from the financial institutions, multilateral institutions. So climate is so pervasive in so many areas now because it's such a ubiquitous issue and one that threatens the stability of our planet, but also involves every aspect of economic activity. I think that's why you see the growth of the of the of, of the cop sometimes people say well gee what well, maybe we don't do we really need the negotiations but and do we need a cop and maybe you know so people jumping around every year but if we i i've always been of the view if we didn't have the cop already we would have to invent it because we need that kind of uh, focal point for people to come and gather uh, talking about what I think is the most existential issue of our time. Right. I mean, although, you know, I've come to refer to the annual negotiations like this one as Climate Expo 2023, um, right. the role of the negotiations are important. We were talking about the loss and damage fund. That's part of the negotiations themselves. Other very important elements, such as the Global Methane Pledge, are not part of uh, that that's actually sort of a side agreement that's not part of the UNFCCC, I don't think, and the or the Paris Agreement. Yeah, I think that's right. But but those are things, as you say, that um, the 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 COP itself and this broader Expo Trade Fair yeah. <laughs> side of it becomes a platform mm-hmm. for the announcements of those things yeah. because it becomes a natural place to say, hey, if we're gonna we need to accelerate progress on these other areas outside of, but complementary to the formal negotiations. The COP provides a platform for doing that. You know, some, someone asked me a few days ago, a member of the press, um, what would have to happen or not happen such that I would judge COP28 to be a success or a failure. And I said to that, that I don't think it's, the right way to think about it as success or failure, because the way I think about the annual conferences of the parties now is much the way I think about the World Economic Forum in Davos, where I've been and you've probably been, that that's it's not as if people come together from different companies and they're told what to do and then they go back to their corporations, to the board and say, okay, here's what we've agreed to do in Davos. No, on the other hand, people come from the corporations, go to Davos, say what it is they're doing, say what it is they aspire to do. It's bottom up. And the structure of the Paris Agreement and certainly the structure of the annual conference of the parties is is very much like that. It, it really reflects the bottom-up aspects of the Paris Agreement and this broader reality of the important role of uh, civil society. But you may have a different perspective. I tell me about that. Well, I I share some of that perspective in the sense that it's hard to boil down the 
uh, the evaluation of a cop based on some single, did it do X or not? Mm-hmm. Um, I think you can identify in the negotiations, you can say, I mean, there we can say, here is what it would look like for a global stock take to have a, mm-hmm. to be a success or a failure. Some of that you, we'll know on December uh, 13th, I guess the day after it ends. Mm-hmm. Some of that we'll, we won't know until next year or the year after, because the lead time of, of this, you know, some of what we're looking for at the global stock take is not just what gets announced on the day uh, or or the last day of the conference, but how that carries forward into 2024 and 2025. Mm-hmm. Um, so one part of the answer would be, you know, I, I, I do think you can identify um, in terms of the negotiations themselves, there are outcomes that are that we need to see, even if the sometimes you, we're going to need more than uh, than the week after or the two weeks after the COP to assess whether it succeeded or failed. Failed, mm-hmm. but we might need a couple years on. Um, I think the other point I would make, and I, I take the point about you know the comparison to Davos, and yet I, I think it, there is an important distinction. I'm sure you would agree with this, which is that there is a direction of travel we need to be making mm-hmm. in, the, in the COP and in the climate negotiations and, and the and the climate movement more broadly, right? So. So there is a fundamental question of, are we making progress in terms of reducing emissions, in terms of cutting off the tail risk of catastrophic climate change? And those things can be measured and assessed and evaluated. And the COP isn't the only thing that contributes to that, but it's an important part. And so there is a metric of overall success over time that maybe goes beyond the fortnight of a single COP. Mm -hmm. but that the cops are contributing to. And, and I think that's an important thing to keep an eye on. Um, otherwise, it, it, it just does become a, a chance to, to schmooze every, every December and, and we lose track of, of the direction of travel we need to be maintaining. So speaking of that, then that direction of travel and the importance of that, as a final question, let me, let me ask you, uh, are you an optimist or a pessimist with regards to progress on climate change and climate change policy, for that matter, around the world. So, I, I guess I answered in the following way. I, I, let me give a couple of answers. Uh, one is there are two trends we see at, that are battling each other right now. Um, the optimistic side of the trend is that the costs of reducing emissions, the cost of reducing, you know, of, of transitioning to clean energy, zero carbon energy, those costs are falling very fast. They're much lower than we thought they would be even a decade ago. The cost of solar falling by 90%, the cost of wind falling, depending on where you look, 70 to 90%. Yeah, it's been remarkable. Absolutely. Similarly, remarkable. So, and, and, and if you look in the climate models, and Rob, you know this, when we look at the economic modeling, actually, that shows up in the economic modeling of what's possible and where we might get mm-hmm. to. So that's a tremendously positive um, outcome. On the other hand, so so that from that point of view, we're cutting emissions faster than we thought. And if you look ahead, it looks like that's going to accelerate. The other trend that's worrying is that the climate impacts are happening faster than we thought. And even for where we are in terms of temperatures, uh, we're seeing more extreme events than we thought. They're located more in places around the globe. We are, you know, I, I used to th- so we used to think about this as, uh, well, this is climate change. Some climate change is something that's going to happen on the other side of the globe in 2050. It's really important, but it's this long thing off. But we are seeing impacts now everywhere in the world, including around the U.S. And that is 
Uh, and that is really a sense of urgency because it's only going to get worse. And so those are the two trends that are racing each other. I think on balance, though, I do end up more on the optimistic or at least the hopeful side of things. And here's why. If you look back to the eve of the Paris Agreement in 2015, there was an analysis done of where the world was headed. Mm -hmm. And it was done by some of the best climate modelers out there. And and they were trying to take into account, well, what, you know, what is this Paris Agreement? This is just before the Paris Agreement. What is it going to make a difference on? And what they saw is that in, in the absence of the Paris Agreement, the trajectory we were on in advance of Paris was one that had a significant, I always like to think in terms of probabilities because there's no point mm-hmm. estimate temperature. It was one in which the median temperature outcome was something like three, in their projections was around maybe three and a half degrees Celsius by the end of the, 24, the 20, uh, 21st century, so by 2100. That is far beyond anything we've seen before. And there was a significant tail risk of, emission, of of the temperatures rising by more than four degrees or four and a half degrees. And that is an enormous increase in terms of Celsius. And if you look now at where we are, uh, the latest estimates by, by essentially the same group of, of researchers, uh, I think earlier this year, taking into account all the policies we've put into place that, that different countries around the world have put into place and where things are headed, you get a picture that looks like, well, we're, we're on track for more like maybe two and a half degrees, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the tail risk above four is almost non-existent. And there's a possibility now that if we do everything right, we could actually get under two degrees or even well below two degrees. And that's a fundamental shift in mm-hmm. eight years. And now two to two and a half degrees, if that's where we ended up, that's still really high. And that still has really dramatic climate impacts. So we need to continue to drive down emissions, drive down those temperature impacts. Every 10th of a degree that we avoid of warming is tremendous outcome and benefits in terms of avoided damages. So we need to keep bringing that number down. But the fact that in eight years, we've managed to make that much progress, I think does make me more hopeful. But but again, we it's not uh, something where we can sit on our laurels. We have to keep pressing. But that to me is a first order uh, indicator that the Paris Agreement and all the policies that have come with it are helping drive emissions down in the right direction. And we just need to continue and accelerate that effort, but that we have the, the tailwind of the momentum to do that. Well, that that is a point of optimism. You know, you had a you had an argument on either side, and then your third one was itself positive. So I want to yeah. I want to stop with that rather than going to a fourth, <laughs> which might get me depressed again. So listen, thanks very much, Nat, for taking time to join me today. Well, thank you, Rob, for having me. It was really a pleasure. My guest today has been Nat Cohane. He's the president of the Center for Climate and Energy Solutions. Please join us again for the next episode of Environmental Insights, Conversations on Policy and Practice from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. I'm your host, Rob Stavens. Thanks for listening. Environmental Insights is a production from the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. For more information on our research, events, and programming, visit our website, www.heap.com. .hks.harvard.edu